Welcome to Unbreakable Spirit, stories of inspiring and thriving with Jennifer Seven, co-author of a book that is part of the Sisterhood Folios, a number one international bestseller. This is a podcast about real women who've overcome tremendous obstacles and come out on the other side to thrive. Whether their hardships were financial, relational, or health, these women dug deep and found the light out of the dark to rise from the ashes, to find the ability to forgive, to love, and to live an authentic, joyful life. Now, here is your host, Jennifer Seven. Welcome everyone to this episode of Unbreakable Spirit. And I have yet another amazing person that I'm interviewing today. We're gonna be chatting with Lisa Matthews. And let me tell you just a little bit about Lisa. There's a lot to tell you about Lisa, but for more than 25 years, Lisa has committed her time through volunteerism. And did I say that right? Voluntarism <laughs> to, em- <laughs> to empower others. And she is an agent of systemic change in her community. She's helped sustain programs and services for individuals with a disability and their families and is inspired by her experiences as a sibling of a brother with a disability along with other family and close friends with varied health needs. By partnering with several community organizations, she has broadened her understanding of how to navigate complex service systems. And I can relate to that. It is complex. And yeah, and champions inclusion of adequate programs, adequate programs for people who traditionally do not have a seat at the table. She is passionate about her work with service-based entities with a desire to improve the quality of care and life of individuals with a disability and their families. Lisa is a native Washingtonian. She works as the chief grants officer for a nonprofit organization, and she enjoys writing poetry, is a contributing author of two books, and is an honored listee in Who's Who in America. She is the co-author of two books, and an honoree listee in the 2018 in the 2018 and 2019 Who's Who in America. So we're going to get started with Lisa, and I'm so looking forward to hearing Lisa's journey and her story. Welcome, Lisa. Hi, Jennifer. Thanks so much for having me here. I'm excited to be here, and um, I um, hope that uh, your viewers get to hear something that is uh, supportive and helpful to their needs. As you mentioned, uh, my journey definitely began with wanting to support individuals with uh, special needs, primarily because of my brother. And Mm -hmm. if I had to go back, I'd probably go back maybe 20 years. Beyond that, I think we'd go back a bit far. All right. (laughs) Okay, well, let's, let's go back then. And that's yeah, so yeah, so and it it started from a a position of financial of family crisis, I should say for my family, my brother, uh, who has diagnosed with autism, he was uh, faced with a legal crisis in the home. And it was going to jeopardize his um, stability of being able to remain in the home. Hmm. And before that time, my mother would often take him to his uh, typical IP meetings, um, which is the individual pro- individualized program um, for making sure that his services were yeah, kept in place. Yeah, so, exactly. I, I exactly. totally get what you're saying. So when you have yeah. a student or a child with a disability, 
you can get that program set up for them in the school system. Well, yeah. And it was through the school system and he just pretty much aged out of school. And so when he became an adult, he uh, was in day programs. And with that, it was every year that my mother would go to these meetings and I would ask, uh, because I wasn't involved at that time, like, how did things go? And it was pretty much more of them just changing a date. Um, mm-hmm. on the on the paperwork. Nothing more, nothing less was happening. No goals were assessed and that whole thing. And so it was that one fatal night where this incident happens where it's met with the police involved and they say that let's take him to just defuse a situation that's happening and they never brought him back. Oh, and no. Yeah. And so with that, he ended up having a charge that thankfully through the journey that I've been able to go through was able to get exonerated. But it took me going through these different places and learning more about the disability service systems to be able to take that take that off of the table because of the concern that I had for him being a young Black man and the future of something happening where that particular situation happening in the home could ultimately land him into far more trouble than what was there. So that trust in the police and all those different things were also part of my journey in wanting to help law enforcement learn more about how to interact and engage with people with disabilities. And that's terrifying when it's your sibling or your child that runs into that situation. And when you don't know how to navigate this system... Yeah, we had no clue. Yeah, I mean, it can be financially devastating, emotionally devastating, and uh, just on so many levels. And that's 20 years ago, right? Exactly. Thank goodness things are changing. Things have changed. But back then, I'm sure it was very different. Oh, absolutely. I mean, because I... I don't think my mother even recognized that the word autism existed in his plan until I started combing through to better understand my brother and what support we can give him, like what things can I do to know where to go first. And Mm -hmm. in finding that word autism was where I actually uh, started just using Google, just trying to see what exists out here. And I found a um, autism society in DC. And that was really my first landing place. And I think it was the universe that took me there because a lot of the families there were in age with my mother and it helped me better understand a lot of the challenges that she had and what she didn't know because they were in this journey together and providing a system of supports for one another to better the opportunities for their loved ones. And um, I got immediately active with that organization where I started helping them do a newsletter that was going to the city council. And we were just starting to give our voice in the city um, as a community of family members that just equally had some um, concerns about why and where our loved ones should fit in at the table for the different services. And I was able to write written testimonies and things like that as well. But the one thing that I wanna say too is it also just started making me think my mother's going to begin getting older. Where mm-hmm. do I fit in in this? And so then I think if we sped up my timeline a bit, I started getting more involved in trying to find supports for siblings. Now, are, you, are you the only sibling? I do have another brother. But he has, a, he has a family. But it typically, in what I've learned over the years, <laughs> the sisters, women. <laughs> yes, sisters typically uh, take care of 
what needs to be done. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. So I, that's, I was just wondering because this, you, you stepped into that role. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and yeah, and I think for so many other reasons within my family unit, I have been that person to just people come to me to fix it. I put the cape on and I go fix it. You're and a fixer. A fixer. I'm a fixer. I'm a superpower. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's a blessing and a curse because when you need to take that cape off and want someone else to put it on, you don't always have someone there. Mm-hmm. And, and and a lot of people don't want to put that cape on, especially in this kind of a scenario. It's because it's a lot. It's, it's a lot. lot. It's well, so let's a lot. let's talk about that. So you you yeah. put the cape on back mm-hmm. years ago and mm-hmm. and kind of what happened. And so what happened there is we were able to take a look at what his existing program looked like, have conversations with his team, identify where some of the gaps were in his services, and able to then say, well, this doesn't exist, but can this exist? Because a lot of times I feel that people will accept what's given to them because that's all they think is available. Oh, and, yeah. and what I was able to see with my mom is just being thankful and grateful that, okay, that my brother was able to be out in the community during the day. So there was no risk for him opening the door to strangers or that she would wake up and someone was in the home because he did open the door. Mm. So not having those things. So just having him in a day program, regardless of what that looked like for him was where the box was checked and we were okay. It was a relief and she felt he was safe and she was safe. Exactly. But the beauty with siblings is that we know that our brother or sister can get on our nerves. We know that while there might be things that on paper would diagnose them one way, that they are better far beyond what's in front of them. And I wanted that. And so I worked with that team and I asked if, okay, so if there are pieces here where he needs to be able to talk to a therapist, can we add that to his program? And I was able to customize his program. And there was a time where he was in a day program and they were wanting to remove him there. I think that was probably one of my first ahas that there's something here. I put together a letter. We had this meeting where about 15 people shows up and my brother, my older brother and my mom both came to this meeting. And afterwards, this was my first time going to any of these meetings. And they said, what just happened here? And they said that normally one or two people come. It's about 30 minutes long. And I think they wanted to see who had the power behind the pen. Mm. And I sat there at this, at the head of this table or near the head of the table. And I pretty much looked at, looked at director in the eye and I said, he's not leaving. He's not leaving until he's ready. You cannot say that he is going to be dismissed because you want him to go. And was there was any, my- any, any particular reason why they had decided it was time for him to go? Well, well, with autism, there are behavior challenges that, that can happen. And so there were things happening there that they did not want to invest in putting a behavior plan together and things like that. They didn't want to deal with it. They didn't want to deal with it. Exactly. And so I made sure that for at least the next three years until my brother said, I don't think I want to be here anymore. 
mm-hmm. uh, he was able to be there. And I began playing more of an active role in that program. And I began to just also get to know the people that worked with him. I began beginning to just build those networks of support where I had an ear on the inside, as well as me being that voice to champion for and with my brother and my family. And so that's really where a lot of it began. Yeah, it's it's really a very difficult journey. And I have a child with a disability and special needs and navigating the school system is is really tough as well because mm-hmm. you don't know what you don't know. Exactly. So you don't know what you can ask for. You don't know what they have to give you if you ask. <laughs> and uh, we were really having a tough time when he was uh, in high school. And I just remember the case manager trying to tell me without telling me to keep pushing. You know, ah. It's like, uh, like, are you, you don't really have to settle for that. But mm-hmm. it, it, it's a political thing too. Yes. Schools only want to spend so much money, and they want they want the path of least resistance. So, learning so what, what you can and cannot get, and pushing for it is is really challenging. And, and there's so many things you just don't know, and so many resources that you don't know are available to you. It's it's just really terrible. It's like you need a binder. These are all the things, but exactly. no one gives you the binder. <laughs> That is so true. That is so true. I mean, and and I think that the things that I saw different with my brother over time was where he would typically stay in his room when we would come to visit. He came out more. He was more engaging. He wanted to share. He wanted to give hugs. He was able to understand that for the holidays, he wanted to give hugs and say, thank you. I really like this or what I want. Like he was able to start using his voice because I definitely- Yeah. I mean, I, I started off as not having my voice. And when I recognized that I could help empower my brother, I knew that I had to take this to scale. Well, I didn't know it then, Mm -hmm. but as I started just kind of combing through and being involved with the other different organizations that I've been part of, I realized that this is a bigger, greater need. And so that's why a lot of what I do when I'm not working is being a part of these different organizations to volunteer, to share my experiences and to be able to learn what they have to offer and where I can try to make some connections between the different organizations. Because in some cases, there are a lot of silos that exist where there's a common cause that different groups and organizations want to have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, And what kind of a toll did this take on you as you were stepping into this role of the sister who's going to put the cape on? When it worked, it was, it was igniting. It was, it was uh, great. It, I felt like I had a sense of purpose, but what I also realized was that I was beginning to fail at other things with work, with relationships, And I had to begin taking a step back for different reasons that was necessary. And I guess I I say that to say that it's one thing to have what I envision for my brother Mm -hmm. and what he may want, but I don't always get to be the deciding factor. And Mm -hmm. so at times it became a bit challenging to continue to try to do what I wanted to do to help better him and to help 
um, make a better future for not only him, but for me to have my own path to follow. I had to then take that hard step and make some clear boundaries and step back a bit. So you put the cape on and then you're realizing you can't always make the decisions. You can't always be the deciding factor. So who, who was making those decisions? Was it your brother or was it other people that were kind of getting in the way of you being able to direct it all the time? Well, I, my, my brother still lives at home with, with our mother. So a lot of that was the, the parental role. I had to kind of stay in my, my sibling's space. Mm-hmm. And I had to recognize it and acknowledge that. But what I was able to do in setting those boundaries was to just kind of continue this work by continuing to volunteer with some of the organizations that I was a part of because I felt that that's where people got it. They understood where some of my challenges, some of my fears for the future were, because it was not only thinking about the care and services for my brother, but just also recognizing that as my mother gets older, my brother would also need a level of care. And what would that look like for me to stop wherever I am in life to backtrack and do this work? Uh, A lot of times people talk about the sandwich generation in that as people are, are getting older, they have to care for an aging parent as well as their own children. I was on a webinar recently where it's now become a club sandwich because it's not only taking care of the aging parent and perhaps your own family. I don't have any children, but if I did, but then you also have that sibling that may have some needs as you get older. Mm -hmm. And I have good friends in this space now that are living that now. And in some cases where they have to do this from a different state, where they have to leave their families and go off to a different state to try to care and navigate systems of services for an aging parent or a loved one with a disability. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that the things that have helped me in setting some of those boundaries is to continue getting the resources and the networks of support that I've been getting in these groups, because I know that I won't know what it looks like, but I do know that I will have built my community so that I can they won't be able to solve the problems, but to at least be able to have someone to lean on that can talk the same language that can help me be able to figure out what I think I need to know is better than just sitting back and waiting for the it to happen. Mm -hmm. Well, being proactive, because this can be very isolating when you have these responsibilities and overwhelming and isolating, you don't know where to turn. So to find out that there are organizations that can give you support is really wonderful. But I know that you had a lot going on and and we are both co-authors of the Unbreakable Spirit book and you wrote your chapter in the book and it was a a difficult time for you. So would you be willing to share some of what was going on during that time period that you wrote about? Um, Yeah, I can share. Um, I was working for an organization that I quit in 19 years and four months. So I was close to 20 years and I had to make a uh, decision to walk away from this position. Things had just got pretty stressful for me. There were things happening with my family 
that uh, made it just unbearable for me to show up and be present at work. And I felt like if I didn't leave, they were going to invite me to leave. Mm. And it was a hard decision. It just felt like there were so many things kind of pulling at me at once. There was just family members dealing with home security and just life was just kind of happening all around me at once. And like I said, I was the one to wear the cape. And so it just got to a point that I couldn't show up anymore. It actually took a toll on my own health and I was sick, physically sick. And I took a leave of absence from work and I used that time to figure out my escape plan because I just realized that this is not the best version of who I am and I have to figure out how to fix this. And again, I didn't have anyone to help. That was an isolating journey for me as well. Yeah. So you, you've been in this job for almost 20 years, but this, all this turmoil at home, you've got not just your brother, but other things going on and you're the fixer. You're the one trying to put it all together. And then it's overwhelming. You're just overwhelmed. And then it starts to make you sick because stress can definitely make you sick. So you took a leave Mm -hmm. and began to reassess. Yeah. And the most powering thing was making that phone call and just saying that I will not return. And the person that I spoke to said, I can hear the relief in your voice. I think Mm -hmm. I just needed to say it. I needed to own it. I needed to do it. And when that happened, I knew then that, okay, the sun will come up tomorrow. What else in my life doesn't give me peace and I need to fix it. And so I've started kind of just combing through that and just kind of going through that journey of just trying to make peace with that decision. I started another job part-time so that I could help family members with other things. And it was just the right mix and balance for me to be able to work from home for a bit. And then I ultimately started just showing up at different conferences. And I started meeting some of the same people at those conferences. And as a result of that, one of those connections landed me the job that I have today because we just were, we stayed in touch. Mm -hmm. And in doing that, I started just trying to figure out how to continue to be present and do some of the other work that still mattered to me. It mattered to me that I know that I have to figure out what my future looks like. I know that there have to be other people out there that are definitely kind of at a pulse in life of just not knowing whether or not any day now life can happen. And certainly I know that that happens for any of us, like anything can happen. It could be with a spouse or just a child, like anything can happen. But to know that my life had felt like it was stuck on hold was just such a challenge. But like I said, the organizations that I became a part of just started building these networks where I was learning more about the different systems and services, learning about the resources. I started just trying to do more advocacy work. I was appointed by the mayor to lead our disability council in in DC. And I just started just blossoming, if you will. And I don't think I always give myself the credit for that, but I know that had not for the things that I'd gone through, I don't think I would have wanted to put myself in position of power to like have a seat at these tables. Mm -hmm. Well, what courage it must have taken to decide to walk away from that job 
at almost 20 years. I mean, that is pretty huge. Yeah. And, and then you said that you began to look at other areas in your life and kind of purging or cleaning or changing things. And was that a painful process? Uh, how, how did that whole kind of what was going on there? It, it was painful, but necessary. I mean, there was just different, there was relationships mm-hmm. that, that I had to assess differently. And I think that that was the mo- most important thing. There were times where people always relied on the yeses that I had to say no. Mm, that can be yeah. really difficult. And what yeah, do they say? No is a complete sentence, but it's a very hard sentence to say it's sometimes. It's a very powerful <laughs> sentence. Mm-hmm. It's a very powerful sentence. And what I realized in, in saying the no was that I had this time on my hands to figure out me. And I just never been able to do that. I just didn't know what, who I was. I, I really didn't. I mean, I was in my forties at that time and I was thinking, I don't know who I am. I don't know what I like. I felt like I lived according to expectations of everybody else. Mm-hmm. And that was really difficult for me to own because I thought that I had my stuff together even then, because I was always saving everyone else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's I, we, as women, I think a lot of the women that I talk to on this podcast, it, it's like this time comes and it's like an awakening almost that, okay, this is what I've been doing. And mm-hmm. is this what I want to keep doing? And if it's not, how do I change it? How do I yeah. shift it? And sometimes, oftentimes it's it's very painful. It's very difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't realize how difficult it might be before you go through it, but we all get through it. Uh, exactly. and, then, and then the beautiful part, like you said, you began to blossom mm-hmm. once you made the choice and made some shifts and changes, then, then things began to turn around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, and I think that I mean, just being an overthinker and lacking confidence, like those were, I I wore those, I wore those badges and I realized that they were holding me back in a lot of areas. just always second guessing myself and even thinking that places where I was invited to be at the table, like, do I really belong here? Like, do Mm. people really want to hear what I have to say? Is it that that they call that the imposter the syndrome that kind of, yes. yeah, yeah, where exactly. you are so perfectly perfect, but you're afraid you're not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think a lot of women struggle with that. It, exactly. It, I read a yeah. book about that. I think it was called the imposter syndrome, actually. It was really interesting. And it was about a woman in business and feeling mm-hmm. as successful as she was, she never really felt like that's who she was. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I mean, so even when people call on me now, I definitely just, I'm better at it, far better at it than I was, because I used to say no. I think about even a time in college when I had a public speaking assignment, and they wanted to videotape us. I, I said, I'm sick. I can't be there for that assignment that day. Like, I just ran away from telling my story. And ironically, this past year, 
I was able to give my first keynote address at a, a sibling conference, a national, actually it became an international sibling conference given the times that we're living in, where we had folks in other countries, they had about 300 people that were in attendance and I was able to share a part of my story for that event. Yeah. That is phenomenal. Yay, you. Yay, you. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> well, let's, yeah. let's talk about again, or let's go back to where you're looking at this brother that you have who's with your mom mm-hmm. and planning for the future and knowing that you're going to have an important role in that. Yeah. So in thinking about what that looks like, I have no clue. Um, it's, it's, <laughs> right. there we go. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, let's let's think about that because the thing there is right now, his services are in place, mm. but to reimagine the idea of my mother having a sudden failed health issue or was no longer here, it's that push pull of which fire am I supposed to burn out first here, and what does that look like? And I don't have the answer, honestly. But again, as I mentioned, what I do have is a checklist mm-hmm. of phone calls of, of people that I can begin trying to comb through and help make sure that my brother has a pathway to be able to survive and thrive in a different way now. Mm-hmm. So that's what I am hoping for that will come out of all the work that I've been doing all these years. But right, yeah. because you're you're not the parent, so you don't have all the authority or the control, but you know, ultimately, you're probably going to be the one that is going to have to take over that role. So you're in that in-between. You're in the in-between. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I, I feel like in so many different ways that my life is just in this holding place. And I don't want to think like that, but mm-hmm. that really is our reality. We know that life is chosen and death is a reality. And we just don't know what that looks like. And if we obviously thought of the order of it, then traditionally our parents would go before us. But I mean, who's to say what happens if I went before my brother? Like I, it really concerns me of what his future would look like, because I don't know what that challenge would be for him and Mm -hmm. in helping him find his own voice. It, it, sometimes it's so funny that when he does uh, voice his own thoughts and opinions, I think my um, mother sometimes feels that he's being combative. And it's like, uh-huh. no, these are the things that he should be doing. Mm-hmm. Because if he doesn't speak up for himself, who will? Yeah. yeah. So thinking of, I'm thinking of our listeners and any of our listeners that might have these struggles either. I mean, for you, it's sibling. For me, it's been the child who is now an adult yeah. and, and trying to find out what the services are and, and how to plan. What, what kind of words of wisdom would you share with someone that is just beginning to navigate this? Uh, that maybe you can give an idea of some of the resources that they could uh, access. Well, I, I wouldn't want to, I, there are a lot of resources, definitely. And I think, like you said, it depends on if it's for a sibling, if it's for a self-advocate, if it's for a parent, I feel like I'm the job that I left of uh, those near, nearly 20 years, it was being a, a programmer, a data programmer. So mm-hmm. by nature, my brain works kind of in a systematic 
kind of way. And so when I think of resources, like there are these buckets of networks that I have in all those different areas. And I think that it would, I would be able to offer anyone that has an interest or a need in wanting resources or even supports, because I also run sibling support groups with some individuals as well. But then there are also parent groups that I'm familiar with. So if there are, with the overarching theme of thinking about a caregiver, if Uh someone is in that role of some level and is looking for some type of support or some type of services, I live in Washington, D.C., so it may not be that I know the answers in in every state, obviously, Mm -hmm. but I may be able to put them on a path of some resources that could potentially exist that would help them. Yeah. Cause it can be very, as we talked about already, it can be so overwhelming and, Mm -hmm. and you can feel so lost because you don't know which direction to go into. And it's not like everything is in one neat little place. (laughs) Like we mentioned, like that binder I would have liked to have been handed. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. And there are two, yeah. and, And one thing that I'm working on is kind of a, a toolkit, if you will, because when we think about just even not only just end of life, but just in general of wanting to have a sense of knowing where things are, be it bank statements, be it wills, like all those things, like wanting to package those things together. So I'm starting to do some focus groups and conversations to begin building something like that. It may not be all comprehensive because I feel like people have these things in different buckets, but I also would include additional resources and things there as well. So would love to be able to talk with people about some of their thoughts and some of that to help build out some of that work. Yeah, I I think that's also very important. And as you and I were talking before we began the call, I've been thinking about that for my child. What what do I set in place when I'm not here? And Mm -hmm. you don't think about that because because you're, you're in the middle of your, and you're dealing with so much <laughs> other stuff that you're like, yeah. oh, wait, what if I'm not here? Oh no. <laughs> now mm-hmm. I got to figure out what happens because yeah, it's you, so important. You don't want to leave them lost or yeah. under a, under a court's, uh, what's the word authority or administration, you know, it's mm-hmm. like you want someone that is going to be their advocate exactly. and really look out for them and not let them just get caught up into the system. Exactly. So Lisa, you mentioned that you have uh, co-authored a couple of books. So I know that Unbreakable Spirit, which will be in the show notes if anybody wants to to get it and read these wonderful stories. But what else have you written? The other book that I wrote is called Breaking the Code of Silence Now. And that really was me journaling at a really good time and place in my life where I actually had learned at age 50, who my father was. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that's another whole conversation. (laughs) We'll have to have you come back and we'll have that whole story. But that's, yeah, that's wow. Yeah, but it was so therapeutic to have that project as an opportunity to get a lot of those thoughts out on paper. Yeah. Okay. Breaking the code of silence. So I'll put that in the show notes as well. In case anybody would like to, to read that. It sounds really fascinating. And Lisa has a quote that I just want to share because I just thought it was so beautiful. So here it is. A voice is never silent. We must show up and elevate those who are not at the table to be seen and heard to make a difference. Be the change you wish to see in the world. And it just, I think that's just so, so spot on. Thank you. And finding your, 
finding your voice is mm-hmm. not always easy. It's no, it's not. So again, let's go back to just for a moment. You you share that you have buckets of resources, and then you might be able to to guide someone. So. I know you so generously mentioned that you would be willing to talk to a listener or share resources. So, so talk a little bit about that for a moment. As far as as someone res- reaching out, yeah, someone reaching oh, okay. out to yeah. you, yeah, yeah. I, people could connect with me via email. My email address is l a matthews. So it's l a m a t t h e w s l l c at gmail.com. And I'll put that in the show notes as well. Okay. Yeah. Because, and one of the other things, like in addition to talking to individuals and providing resources and supports, um, one of the other things that I do now is uh, there are people that have their own businesses in this space. And I give them just kind of consulting tips and advice, looking to see where they can further their outreach and increase their population to build their community of support to be able to promote what they're offering. And in spaces where there are not, uh, where there are not individuals with disabilities or people in the Black community are not as part of these conversations, I try to help elevate and try to help make connections with other organizations so that they can begin kind of building together on those database systems, if you will. I kind of coin myself as being a connectologist. Oh, I like that. <laughs> I like that. A connectologist. I have to remember that. That's really yes. great. And Lisa, I just, I know you have this full-time job, but I think this should be your full-time job. <laughs> I mean, I think this is so important and so needed. And I, I know that you do it from your heart and as a volunteer, but goodness, I, I think you need to put a hat on that says you are the connectologist and get paid for it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still trying to figure that out. I do love the job that I have now, the opportunity there to be able to work from home and to just be able to help. Um, and I feel like the work that I do here, even though it's in a disability service space, it aligns with what I do for my, my paying job because it's they focus on a number of projects with civic engagement as mm-hmm. their um, primary focus. And, and it allows you to be able to do all this wonderful, exactly. wonderful work that you're doing. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Well, is there anything that you want to leave our listeners with? Any words of wisdom or advice? I, I guess if you, you read one quote that I had. I would probably want to share a quote from The Unbreakable Spirit that the chapter title that is in that book is called Follow Your Own Path. And my quote here is, the road less traveled is the one we create for ourselves. And we have the power to be the architect of our lives. Mm -hmm. I love that. I absolutely love that. And for all that you've been through and all that you went through, you are, you have blossomed and you have found your passion, this huge desire to help others. And it's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. So yay you. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. And again, I really appreciate the opportunity to be here today. And I applaud you for the work that you're doing for for building up a lot of um, folks in this podcast. I think it's amazing work that you do as well. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So listeners, you'll find all the resources. Well, you'll find information in the show notes. You'll find out how to reach Lisa. We'll put her email in there. We'll 
put the books in there so you can check them out and and then you know just absolutely reach out to her if you are needing help because at least she can probably point you in the right direction to get you started and it is a complicated not simple path when you're dealing yes. with loved ones with disabilities it is it is challenging it's very challenging so to know that you are not alone is really comforting yes thank you lisa thank you so much for being on the show and sharing all this amazing and wonderful information i really appreciate it and i'm sure our listeners will too thanks again thank you thank you for joining us on unbreakable spirit To learn more about Jennifer and her holistic weight loss approach, visit her website at 7company.com. That's the number 7company.com. And please join us for our next episode where we'll hear from more women who overcame hardship and learned how to thrive.